I think it's um, fairly familiar as well. So you follow in your copies. Just one quick verse. Matthew chapter 10 at verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that is something that endures forever. This morning we're going to start uh, kind of slow and see if we can't pick up some steam as, as, we, uh, as we proceed. We're going, to, we're going to start with the simple and we're going to move to the complex. Thus... Jack and the Beanstalk. Now, do you know what makes Jack and the Beanstalk uh, a, a timeless classic? Well, I'm not sure, but I think part of the reason, at least, is because <clears throat> it, it teaches a principle. A principle which I hope to show you is ubiquitous. Now, for you Ole Miss grads, um, ubiquitous. <laughs> ubiquitous is a, is a three-syllable, it's a four-syllable word. And, and I, I know that that's challenging for you. Uh, so let me, let me give you a definition quickly. It means simply um, everywhere, all around. It's ubiquitous. <laughs> um, do you know the story of Jack and the Beanstalk? Well, Jack, uh, as you might recall, is uh, the son of a, of a poor widow, um, and they have one prized possession. It's a cow. The, the, the name of the cow is Milky White. Remember Milky White? And unfortunately, Milky White has stopped giving milk. And so the poor widow determines that it's time to, um, to sell the cow, because Milky White doesn't give any milk anymore. And so... She says to her son, Jack, I want you to go to town and I want you to sell Milky White. And so Jack heads off uh, with Milky White in tow to sell him in the city and runs into a um, a man that appears to be a wizard of some sort. And and this wizard uh, talks Jack into um, trading his, the cow for a handful of magical beans. Remember that? And so Jack is all excited about his handful of magical beans and... He comes home and tells his mother what he has done, and his mother is furious, absolutely furious. And she's furious um, because he's got this handful of beans, and, and she calls him a dolt, um, and then throws the beans out the window. And then you know what happens. The, uh, the beans turn into this huge stalk that reaches into the heavens, and... And so Jack, the adventurous sort, gets up in the morning and he climbs the stalk all the way up into the sky. And, and there he uh, arrives at the home of the ogre and his wife. And uh, through a set of circumstances, he steals a bag of gold. And he scurries down the, and gives it to his mother and she's all excited. And, and so he wants to go back again. So he goes back again. And, and that, the next time he steals the the hen that lays the golden eggs. Remember her? And so he brings that down. And then the final time that he goes up, 
he, uh, at almost risking his whole life, he steals the, the, the golden harp. And, and he brings that down. And, um, and that's pretty much where the book ends. But there's a principle in there, guys. And, and, and the principle would be something like this. Everybody in Jack's life identified him as a fool. Because he had given away something that everybody thought was valuable. Everybody thought that cow, you know, was, I mean, that was, that was valuable. And he gave it away. But in exchange, in return, he ended up with something far more valuable, didn't he? <laughs> Pretty simple, don't you think? Not so fast. Um, apparently, it's not so simple because our text teaches something like that. Could I read it again? Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, we don't, we don't, um, we don't consider that very simple at all. I mean, we don't think that's that's an easy thing. Uh, um, Obedience to Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Guys, um, let me see if I can um, show you this same principle that I said a moment ago is ubiquitous. Let's see if we can find it elsewhere. Um, And we're going to move from the fairy tale, we're going to move to that which is more real. You know what this is? This is a, um, it's an acorn. That's an acorn. And, and crammed inside that acorn is enough potential to fill the world with wood. But to get that wood, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to give this away. This is going to have to die before you can ever get a lot of wood. But it's all in there. Or, um, how about this? You know what this is? That's a kernel of corn. Now, that's not going to fill me up. But this might. Um, but to get this, I'm going to have to give this away. This is going to have to die so that I can have this. Can you see that? Bet you can't, but... It's, it's real. You can see it afterwards if you like. You know what this is? This is a wheat seed. And this is a wheat stalk. And this is a loaf of bread. Now, 
I can't make a sandwich out of this. But I can make a sandwich out of this. But to get this, I'm going to have to give this away. This is going to have to die if I ever hope to have this. Now, um, I'm not done. I told you it was a principle found everywhere. So now let's move from the agricultural to that which is a bit more personal. How about um, parenting? <laughs> parenting. Oh, mom and dad. Um, you know what I mean, don't you? I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty much you for them. I mean, you take your life and you basically set it aside. You put your life on hold for about 18 years or 22 years or 28 years or 48 years. Uh, but but um, so that your children will become responsible adults, you give it away. So that you can see responsible adults out of your kids. And if you don't do that, oh my, you create for yourself more pain than you can ever possibly imagine. Because as you know, all life-giving, life-changing, life-transforming love requires sacrifice. Guys, um, it's the same principle. It's the, it's the same principle that you saw in Jack and the Beanstalk. It's the same principle that you saw in the acorn. That is, to find life, you're going to have to lose life. Just like our text said. Here's another one, or another example. How about... Real forgiveness. Oh, my. Real forgiveness. You know, let's imagine for a moment that, that, your, that your marriage has suffered an affair. God forbid. But if, um, if you, as the offended party, grant forgiveness, here's what that's going to mean to you. You, the offended party... You're going to have to absorb the blow. You're going to have to pay the price. You don't see that? Well, let me, let me clarify, or at least attempt to. Let's imagine that you come to my house um, for a visit, and in an act of carelessness, you break my television set. And um, you're so sorry that you've broken my television set, but you don't have the money to, to replace my broken television set. And so you ask for forgiveness. And I grant it. Well, you know what that means, don't you? It means that, that I'm going to have to absorb the cost of your offense. Because I still got a broken television set. So if I really forgive you, then I got to pay the price. Because real forgiveness means that if something beautiful is to come out of this, 
somebody is going to have to sacrifice. So if you're ever to know real forgiveness, you're going to have to pay the price. Or um, this is something I found in the New Testament, um, pastoring a congregation. (laughs) Oh, my. The Apostle Paul made a statement in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. You know what somebody, I mean, a pastor worth his salt. I mean, if you've got one, I hope you've got one. If you've got one, you better keep him. But this is what happens. Death is is at work in him so that life can be at work in you. Because all life-changing, life-transforming, life-giving love means that somebody has to die. Somebody has to sacrifice. Or, or uh, how about your marriages? Um, you know what happens, guys, if you enter into a marriage and neither one of you dies. Oh, oh, oh. that's pretty ugly, isn't it? Or if you enter a marriage and only one of you dies. But if, if you take two people and they're both willing to die, then something really beautiful comes of that. Now, guys, I, when I say death, you know I'm not talking about a physical death. I, at least I hope you know I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about when I say death is that, I, that you are saying that you will give up whatever right you may think you have to run your life any old way you think it ought to be run. And once you come to that, and your spouse does too, mm, there's something really beautiful that happens. But before it does... You've got to give something away. Something's got to die. And in return, something very beautiful occurs. Which again, is what our text says. If you're going to find life, you're going to have to lose life. Now guys, I hope all of that, all of those little illustrations of mine, I hope it has done what I hoped it would do, and that is simply illustrate the point that's contained in Matthew 10.39. That truth in 10.39 is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's all around us. And the truth is simply, to find life, you got to give it away. And, um, and though you may fully understand all that I've said this morning, and you may fully agree with everything that I've said this morning, that text is still pretty upsetting. And it's upsetting because it it runs contrary to everything that I'm told in every other place. I mean, they don't tell you that over at the corporate headquarters. I mean, this is, this is not what's being taught out at the university campuses. This is not the subject of conversation at the fitness club. This is not what people are talking about over a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And so consequently, you, you don't see many people who are eager to give their life away. Oh, no, no, no. Just the opposite. 
I mean, I, duh. This is, this is so upsetting. Verse 39 is so upsetting because every place else I'm taught to do just the opposite. And the opposite is what I know a lot about. I mean, I, 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 don't, I know how to hold on to my life. I, I know how to, to clutch it and keep it and pamper it and cater to it. I'm not giving it away. No, sir, Bobby, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to run from, from one fun experience to the next fun experience. I'm going to maximize pleasure now. Is that you? Is that who you've become? Is that how you live your life? Well, here are some indicators that you may be living your life like that. One, does servanthood come hard to you? Uh, you mean, I mean, uh, I, I tend to be more of a consumer than a servant, you know? For instance, um, you know, having a Sunday school class for all of my kids, that's very important to me. Uh, but I have I wouldn't dream of teaching one of those things. <laughs> no, sir. Yeah, I want my wife serving me, but, you know, I'm not much at, uh, you know, serving her. Servanthood come hard to you. Or how about this? Is, um, does, does giving money away make you very uncomfortable? Giving 10% of my money away? Why? Absolutely not. I need every dime I've got to support the life that I'm now living. I mean, I'm up to my earlobes in debt because I'm trying to squeeze as much pleasure out of this one as I can possibly squeeze. I ain't, I ain't giving any money away. Or here's another indicator. Does it drive you crazy when someone takes advantage of you? Guys, I know that it's not pleasant to, um, to have people take advantage of you, but do you seethe and, and, and you try to plot how it is that you can get even? Or, or how about this? How do you face cancer? Now, guys, don't, don't mishear me. Um, none of us want to hear the C word. But there's a, there's a great difference between honest speech and honest mourning and despair. Guys, all of those are just indicators. Indicators that, that this promise of Matthew 10.39, that this promise of finding another life, a better one, that that promise has not yet seized your will. It hasn't seized your imagination. Those things are just indicators. Those four things are just servanthood's hard, giving money away, being taken advantage of, uh, facing kids. Those are just indicators that, that the only life that's really important to me is this one. 
So I do hold on to it. I do pamper it. I do cater to it. I do want to maximize pleasure because this business of giving away life, this has not yet reached down to the, to where my decision maker is. There's one more indicator. That is one more indicator that that this may be true of you. That is, that this life is the only one that's important to you. And, and I've saved this one for last. The indicator is inordinate grief. You know, grief off the charts. Paralyzing grief. Grief that overwhelms you into a fetal position in the face of some some tragic loss. You know, guys, um, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church and he says, I don't want you guys grieving like the Gentiles grieve. You know, like those people who grieve with no hope. I don't want I don't want you grieving like that. He doesn't he doesn't condemn grieving. He simply condemns grieving without hope. But how do we pull that off? How do we pull grieving without hope or with hope? How do we pull that off? How do we avoid grieving without hope and then grieving with hope? How do we do that? Well, I'd, I'd like for you to hear from a couple of experts in the field. I'm introducing to you um, David and Molly Shea. And let me tell you um, a, little about, a little about them. The Shays have three children. The Shays have three children, and their oldest son, Stuart, uh, an 18-year-old son who was a freshman at the University of Arkansas, was killed in a car accident in Flagstaff, Arizona, a little over three years ago. He was riding in the back seat of a truck. The truck went off the road. And of the three people inside the truck, Stuart was the only one killed. You know, David, I guess it's, um, it goes without saying that that the Shea family has had their share of grief and grieving. Could, could you tell us a little bit about yours? Yes. Um, I know everybody, everybody grieves differently um, when they face a tragedy. But, you know, for us, I felt like we went through, I guess, a few stages, if you can call them that. But first, um, the, the obvious is the uh, is just the, the shock of what, what has happened. And, you, um, you you kind of live in a, a nightmare for, um, for for days, and you, you you're kind of in a haze. You don't really remember what's happened, and uh, then you you kind of wake up and you realize that it's it's not a dream that that it's reality, and so you try to cope with it and deal with it. Um, we, um, we 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 go back and we try to look at the accident and we try to replay it in our minds and try to figure out exactly what happened and. 
I don't know, some, for some reason you feel like if you can figure out what happened, you can somehow change, change the outcome of what happened. But fix, you can fix it. You think you can fix it. And, uh, you, you know, it takes some time, but, but you realize that you can't fix it. And, uh, and, you know, and then, of course, we live in Germantown. We live in a society where we know a lot of influential people and a lot of people with money. And you think that, you know, if you can get a hold of the right person or you can raise enough money that that, that may fix it, too. And, and you come to the realization that that doesn't do it either. And so all you, all you really have left is hope and, uh, and the gift of eternal life that, that Christ has promised us. And we uh, we just, you know, we have a son in heaven now, and that's kind of what we look forward to. So you're obviously still grieving? Yeah, we grieve every day, and it's, uh, um, I will say this, though, that, that God gives you, a, he really does give you a peace to uh, to go on, and, and uh, we, we are the happy family we once were. I mean, we, we, we really we really are, but uh, but you do, you still grieve, you grieve every day. David, in one of our conversations, um, you said something about y'all were on a plane and you were headed out to Flagstaff to see the, uh, the, the site of the accident. And, and the four of you um, all agreed that you just wished the plane would go down. And Could you mention that? Uh, yeah, we were, we were flying to, to Arizona it's about seven weeks later, and we... Uh, we, you know, we don't have a, we didn't have a death sentence, and none of us were, um, none of us were suicidal or anything. But we did. We kind of all turned to each other and said, you know, if this, if this plane were to go down, we'd be okay because we, we'd get to see Stuart sooner than later. So. Molly, in one of our conversations, you mentioned how angry you were with God. Tell us about that. It wasn't that I was as, as much anger as just shocked and confused. Um, it just. You know, it's just not the way you want your life to go. And um, I'm just never, I never had anything make me question my faith like, like that. And uh, then you realize, though, that that's, that's all you have to hold on to is, is, that, is your faith. That's, when you're at the, the, the bottom, that is absolutely all I had to lean on. Could you pray? Um, not for a while. Uh, only thing I could pray was... Um, just help me, Lord, help me. And, and I had a sweet friend that wrote prayers down for me for about a month, and I, and I, uh, I read them every day just to, to get through it. There was, there was one thing that you said in a conversation that we had, which is really what gave me the desire to have you share this with this congregation. You, you said that, the, 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 that coping was hard, but there was, there was one thing that enabled you to go on. And Tell this congregation about that. Well, it's just the the fact that, um, first of all, of course, um, my husband and my uh, other two children gave me the strength to go on, and and I I had to pull it together just to um, give them a life. You know, I, I couldn't just curl up in a ball and get in the closet, and um, so it, it's just the thought that I know that we're all going to see Stuart again, and we're going to see him in heaven, and. And we're all going to be together again, and and there won't be any more tears and sorrow. And to me, that's just a, an amazing feeling that one day we'll all be together again and happy. So this business of resurrection has come to mean something more to the Shays. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Guys, why is our grief different from everybody around us? It's different because we are a people who have the hope of resurrection. Now stay with me, guys, because this is where we'll try to tie all this together. But, but we are people who grieve with hope. We can serve. We can give money away. We can give our lives away. Because that we know we're going to get another one, a better one, one that is free from sin and suffering. Now, I'm saying this is the point of Matthew 10.39. Who is it that is willing to give their life away to find life? It is people who know that there's another one awaiting them. The people who are, who are ready to say, this one is not as important to me, are the ones who have at the base of their soul a knowledge of a resurrected life that's been promised them. We, we are people who know resurrection and we connect Jesus' resurrection to the one that's been promised to us. And the realization of that promise for us unclutches our fingers. We stop holding on to this life so tenaciously. We're willing to let go of this one because we know we're going to get another one. And how do we know that? The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gang, the best example, of course, of giving his life away is Jesus Christ. He's the one who became poor so that I could become rich. He's, he's the one that was punished so that I might be forgiven. He's the one that became weak so that I could become strong. He was the one that was banished so that I might be drawn close. He's the one who gave his life away so that I could have one. Gang, believing in this Christ as our resurrected Savior It makes me live this one differently. To the point that I'm willing to give it away. I don't like to be... We, we don't have to like being taken advantage of. But we can. Because there's another one awaiting us. 
You can have this life if, if I need to, if we need to serve you because I'm going to get another one. I don't need every possible creature comfort that's ever come out of corporate America. I don't need that. Because I'm going to get another one. I'm saying that I am made ready to give this life away. And the promise is that I find a new one. And I'm made ready by the assurance of a resurrected Savior. Guys, the people who find life now are the ones who are willing to give it away. And the ones who are willing to give it away are the ones who know that another one, a newer one, a better one awaits them. A resurrected one. They become good parents and and good spouses, and good givers, and, and, and good servants, and good grievers. They find life by giving it away. And they're, they're made willing to give it away. And even on occasion, eager to give it away. Because of the promise of the resurrection. A promise of another life. A life compared to this one is like a comparison of this to this. My friend, Perhaps the most practical thing that anyone could ever possibly say to you is this. Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead. Our Father, I pray that by this reminder that you will loosen our clutches on this life. That we might not grab this one so tightly. Knowing that we can give this one away. Because there's another one that awaits us. And that which will enable us, enable us to serve and give and grieve and all the rest is the knowledge that there is a resurrection awaiting the people of God. Our Father, if you have brought people here today who have not yet met this resurrected Savior of ours, 
might they discover Him in all of His resurrected beauty among us. Might they discover that Jesus Christ is the one who gives who gives a, a sense of meaning to this life and also prepares us for the next one. We make our prayer, of course, in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord.